Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast as we continue what is proving to be a quite a long run of episodes on maritime disasters. We'll call 2022 the year of maritime disasters, just as I think we could call 2021 the year of great naval battles. What will next year hold for the podcast? Well, I'm not sure, but as one of our animations has recently gone viral on Instagram with well over 2.8 million views, I think it might be on maritime innovation and technology. Anyway, back to the disaster in hand and to HMS Guardian, a 44-gun fifth-rate ship of the Royal Navy built at the height of the War of American Independence but put into service too late to take part in that war. This ship then became an instrumental part of Britain's next major project as a colonial power. Having lost their American colonies, they moved on to Australia and to the transport of convicts to Australia. And so HMS Guardian left Spithead in September 1789, chock full of stores and convicts bound for the British colony of Botany Bay. They arrived at the Cape of Good Hope in November after an uneventful journey, and after reprovisioning, they set off again. But ten days later, they spotted an iceberg. To tell the jaw-dropping story of what happened next, there is no one better than Margaret Scotty, author of the excellent book Sailing School, Navigating Science and Skill, 1550 to 1800, which investigates how early modern sailors developed mathematical and technical expertise in the age of exploration and the print revolution, in which the hugely talented Edward Rieu, captain of HMS Garden, and his astonishing escapes on board that ship features in great detail. Now, as ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Here is the excellent Margaret. Margaret, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Sam, it's my pleasure. Right, the Guardian. Let's start with the ship before the people. Tell me about the ship. Well, um, this is not a very uh, large ship. Um, It is, I think, a fifth rate and approximately 140 feet long. Um, And the Guardian has 
one main job, which is to supply the penal colony uh, at Botany Bay. Um, and so all of, or almost all of the Guardian's guns are stored uh, below decks. Um, and she's laden with probably a thousand tons of, of supplies. Um, and this is actually some of the most interesting stuff about this voyage. Uh, what did they think that the penal colony in Australia might need. Um, there's a list of equipment, um, and I love the detail. Um, 900 pairs of men's shoes, 600 pairs of women's shoes, and yet I think it's only 50 children's shoes. And I keep thinking, mm. there would be a lot more kids if you have, you know, <laughs> 600 women. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 colonies grow. It's the one thing about colonies. Right, right. Um, and then they uh, walk you through all of the different, um, you know, supplies, the, the beef, the wine, um, what they have stocked up uh, in Cape Town before they left. Um, and, um, well, we can talk about the kind of um, idea of what um, flora and fauna should be exported from England to this new oh, colony. So they're, they're bringing plants with them as well, are they? Well, so, um, you know, the voyages at this time, uh, I think, are really interesting, right? When is this a voyage of supplying a colony? When is it planting a colony? Um, when we think about this captain, this young 26-year-old, uh, who's from a fairly uh, well-to-do military family, um, he had connections. He was, um, as a young 16-year-old, sailed with Captain Cook on his third voyage. Um, and as you know, uh, Joseph Banks, who became the president of the Royal Society, had also done uh, a voyage with Cook. And so somehow Ryu is in the ambit of Joseph Banks and the Royal Society. Um, and Joseph Banks advises what should go on board the deck of the Guardian. Um, and there's a list of 93 types of plants um, wow. And right in the middle of the uh, deck, they build this kind of greenhouse, um, which later will become the hospital uh, when things go um, go haywire. But, you know, this is a five foot tall, 178 foot square um, building. And, you know, the, uh, they're quick to reassure the sailors that don't worry, this, this greenhouse should not impede the working operations on board the ship. Um, and then... Several of the men on board are, are asked to become basically um, gar uh, gardeners. And so they have other jobs on board. One of them is one of the superintendents of the 24 convicts, um, but he's also the gardener and sends these letters um, updating on the status of the plants. And there's sort of little markings to say, um, these ones are in good shape. These ones are dead, and these ones are likely to die. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my garden. I'm hugely into gardening myself, right, right. but there's always some on the way out, and you know that. It's quite sad. Right. Um, well, I don't think the, the artichokes made it on this voyage, but, you know, they really had a large uh, stock of medicinal plants and uh, herbs and trees, and uh, you really wonder uh, how, how many of them would have, would have made this, um, you know, six-week or longer voyage, but... It's a wonderful story, isn't it? I've, I, it's completely new to me, this idea of taking plants abroad. I mean, I've, I've only come across people going 
exploring and then bringing bringing plants back right. to the UK. The idea of doing it the other way really is new. And it's also it's a, such a powerful reminder that the 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 penal colony it really was the end of the world. In no way was it self sufficient. Right. And so that's part of the the concern that when the Guardian um, wrecks and um, hits the iceberg uh, in December 1789, uh, and then some of some survivors um, send word back to um, to Cape Town that this this ship has gone down, almost immediately they make new plans to to outfit another ship um, because they're really concerned to try and get materials down to Australia. and what's interesting, I feel like I'm telling this story somewhat out of order, but uh, the, ship, <laughs> the ship, in addition to being outfitted with the plants in the greenhouse, it had livestock. Um, it had horses, cattle, um, various fowl. It had um, rabbits, which I always think, uh-oh, you know, please don't bring rabbits to Australia. This is, you know, one of those yeah. bad imported uh, species. Um, it had a pair of deer from Mauritius that they wanted to bring. Uh, the male deer, unfortunately, uh, died before um, embarking. But don't worry, we think that the female deer was pregnant. Um, so there's all of this detail, right? Just to kind of wow. say, well, we are really keeping a good stock of all of this. So there were sheep on board, and the sheep made the entire voyage. Um, the two months after hitting the iceberg, before returning to Cape Town, uh, and the sheep were still alive. And you just kind of imagine their huge dismay once they get back to solid ground and are almost immediately <laughs> transferred onto another ship no. and sent to Australia. No. Oh dear. Those poor sheep. <laughs> um, let me just interrupt for our listeners. If you don't know what happened when rabbits were introduced to Australia, I'm not going to tell you. It's a bit of homework. Um, Google it. It's uh, one of the most shocking stories that you may well have ever come across. Uh, rabbits in Australia. So, um, right, we've hinted it a little bit. And in my introduction, I will have mentioned that this vessel hit an iceberg. Take us through what happened to the poor old Guardian. Yes. Well, so... Um, this is a, a vessel filled with probably 120 uh, men and one woman, um, and 24 of these are convicts uh, going to Australia. Um, the boat was well provisioned, as I mentioned, but for some reason, uh, within three weeks of leaving Cape Town, heading south in you know November, December 1789, uh, they're already running low on water. Uh, and so they make a note that the convicts have to go to three-quarter provisions. So they're already being kind of um, dialed back on the daily uh, rations of water, etc. So they're in the southern Indian Ocean, um, and Ryu spots some icebergs. And he thinks, well, um, we could solve this problem with the lack of water by collecting some chunks of floating ice. Because... His mentor, Captain Cook, had done something similar. I believe it was on his second voyage where he collected uh, chunks of icebergs. Well, I like to tell people, if you are ever in southern Indian Ocean and you see icebergs, really the best strategy would be to sail the other way. Um, (laughs) Sailing into a field of ice chunks uh, was a a nearly fatal error for you. Um, And so... I think, again, this is sort of heavy seas, it's foggy, it's dark. He puts a watch on to make sure that, you know, they're okay in this field of floating ice, but unfortunately they are not. And uh, late in the night of December, 
I think it's either December 23rd, um, a looming mountain of ice um, appears and it's off the stern of the boat um, and actually somehow collapses onto the ship and takes off the rudder and staves in quite a considerable hole uh, in the hull. So chaos breaks out, you know, in the wee hours of the 24th of December and um, just have to imagine the flurry of activity. There are four pumps on board. And so the captain immediately splits all of the men into crews to to man these pumps. Um, And there's hour by hour documentation of how far the water is rising and how low then they pump it back out again and it gains seven feet and then they reduce seven it. Seven feet? Yeah, I mean, it just pours in and then they get it back down, you know, two feet in, you know, overnight and then another four feet, but then it comes, the pumps keep breaking. I mean, it's just riveting to read what is happening. But at the same time, people are panicking, people are raiding supplies, getting drunk, leaping overboard, you know, convinced that they are going to die. And so then they just, you know, abandon ship. Um, Others, for whatever reason, break into the captain's quarters and steal things like silver belt buckles. Um, You know, it just is this moment of of complete pandemonium. Hmm. And yet, uh, Ryu seems preternaturally calm. He says, well, give the men extra grog, but make sure it's not too strong. You know, we don't want them too drunk. Um, and so, anyways, they, they seem to be able to stabilize the ship and, and um, you know, they make it through the night. Um, and then Christmas morning breaks and they start to realize, well, we need to get as many people off this ship as possible. And there's a, a small collection of boats. There's a launch and a cutter and a jolly boat, all of different sizes. Um, and so people, you know, decide, okay, which boat are they going into? Um, and the ship's master gets into uh, the launch and um, about half a dozen men join him and then other people get in these smaller boats. And again, there are details of what they take with them. You know, some of them have a sextant, some of them have water and some you know, bags of biscuit. Um, the, the launch seems quite well equipped. It's got a goose and uh, several other fowl um, and rations of rum, um, one barrel of water. Um, and then, you know, again, just this is like reading um, not a horror film, but really you get the blow by blow of people going into the smaller boat and it nearly gets crushed in the side of the big ship and then and then they rescue them and then people leap into the water and are hauled into the cutter um, and then they realize there are no supplies on the cutter and they call back to the main ship and say, we need that extra sextant. So they trade the sextant for a cheese. <laughs> they hand the cheese back <laughs> to the main ship. I mean, it's, wow. it's really... Um, riveting to, I think you know just to read this so um and of course so we've got some people some people manning these small boats right. not I mean you said there were over a hundred people on board right. and you're not going to get a hundred people into these small cutters are you no no we think about uh, three dozen uh men uh get into the other boats leaving about 60 on board so you know several you know several dozen people have already um been drowned I think in this you know, immediate aftermath of the accident um, so the cutter heads out and by that point it has 15 people on it. Um, and 
again, these men are quite aware of, you know, they have charts, they know roughly where they are, um, and they realize that they are um, slightly to the north of the Prince Edward Islands, which are three little rocks in the Indian Ocean. Um, they have only been encountered by Europeans on three occasions previously. Captain Cook went by them, and the French had passed them, and maybe a Dutch ship. Um, but there are specks um, of, of inhospitable desert rock, you know, or rock, but then um, Ryu calls them deserted. Um, and so he and the master both agree that sailing south to these islands, even if they could find them, uh, would be a death sentence because there's nothing on them, even if they could, you know, come ashore. They'd be much better off to go north because then mm. at least they would be in the shipping lanes um, south of South Africa uh, with maybe even the potential of crossing paths with one of these other um, ships that are bound for Australia. So that's what the, the master does um, in the cutter and heads north. Um, and he um, keeps record of, of how they're managing the 15 men blindfold themselves and divide up the goose, um, little morsels of goose that they um, mm. drink with their daily um, rations of water, um, occasionally get a thimble full of rum, um, and he just kind of documents uh, you know, the desperation of, of this small boat. Um, the men are reduced to drinking their own urine. There'd be these storms, but somehow not enough to wet their handkerchiefs. You know, they're just um, really in desperate shape. But uh, within the week, they do, in fact, run into a French ship. Uh, and that ship, this is just off the coast of South Africa, um, somewhere near Durban, uh, and they are brought to Cape Town. Um, and uh, Clement, the master, has a letter from Ryu, um, and Ryu had, you know, stoically so, said... So Ryu is still on the, on the big ship. He's still on the Guardian. We're, just, we're following the cutter. It's yeah. going down with the ship, he declares. He's right? refused he, to leave. Yes, really. yes. He says, I am going to, you know... Um, as any good Englishman should, stay with my ship and, uh, you know, please give my best to to England. Um, so he writes this... So he's, writ he's written this letter and then given it to the cutter. Yes. So Clement then takes the letter and, um, you know, hands it over to the authorities and, and then that gets passed on um, and eventually makes um, its way up to London. And then... The London newspapers carry the news that the Guardian and all aboard have perished. Um, and that's at the end of April 1790. Um, and Clement, as you could tell, writes this down. He writes down every detail of his adventures and he soon gets that published. Um, so there's this record of this, um, this kind of um, hour by hour account of what's happening on this ship. Um, we should emphasize here that we'll talk about this later, but the... the the historical sources and the, the records that survive of this wreck are unusually brilliantly detailed, aren't they? It's really fantastic. I mean, I think you can kind of, um, I think, well, we'll talk about it, but I think it's almost like the Titanic of its day in terms of um, the fascination by the public of how people manage to survive. Um, and partly, you know, it's, re it's um, Clement's account that, that brings it to life. And then the fact that just a few days after this is news in London about the, the you know, tragic loss of the Guardian, another letter comes in, and that's from Ryu himself, and he has made it to South Africa. He has gotten back to Cape Town two months <laughs> after the wreck. Um, right. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Two months. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to Ryu. So we're back with Ryu, and the last we've heard of him, he was organising people to pump out the ship. What right. happened? A lot more pumping. Um, two, basically, <laughs> two months, two seven months more of weeks of pumping. Um, so, again, I think what happened was because this was a very um, heavily laden ship, and it had all these stores, and so they um, spent quite a lot of time documenting how they rearranged what was left on the ship. Um, they moved everything out of the bow to make it lighter and more maneuverable. Um, and they put a lot of heavy things overboard, the, you know, the guns, the, the barrels of earth in which the plants were growing, you know, um, a lot of, of unimportant things uh, uh, go overboard to, to lighten the ship. But it did have this sort of, um, I think a second um, storage area and that must have filled with water, but then the upper, the, the next level up um, remained dry. So somehow it became kind of a, a two-hulled ship or a double uh, ship. And so that's what Ryu credits uh, his survival to, the fact that somehow um, the water only filled the lower levels. Um, and so we, we see through his uh, logbook just constant um, battles. Again, these, these pumps, the chain pump, the coal pump, they kept breaking um, the, man... the steering is interesting, isn't it? Because his na- his rudder was knackered. So right. how do you steer that? How did he how did he get right. get around that? Right. Well, so he has these two main concerns, and one is steering, and the other is fathering the hull. F O T H E R. Which, uh, for those who like me were unfamiliar, that is the act of um, hauling a sail um, underneath the hull, um, almost like you're kind of cradling it in a in a sail. And they filled the sail with oakum and, you know, detritus that would make it kind of um, like a Band-Aid. And they tried this on two occasions, and it does seem to have stopped the inrush of water. Um, Yeah, so the the pressure of the water holds it, holds this kind of gooey, canvasy thing in position is the theory. Yeah, exactly. So, again, this this turns out to have been included in a number of uh, textbooks, nautical textbooks, um, whether anyone else ever successfully did this. You needed to have 
ropes on either side of the sail and you had to get the whole crew trying to, to drag it underneath it. But um, Rio was quite pleased with at least the second um, attempt to do that. And then he had three different um, kind of steering machines that he tried. And this is really interesting when you realize it's not just him as the captain um, solving problems, but he's relying on anyone on board who might have any other expertise. And one of the men on board, uh, Mr. Ross, had long ago um, been off the coast of Newfoundland and remembered a story of a captain who had survived on a ship, uh, you know, that had been damaged. Um, and he had steered it with some kind of cable. And so they spent several weeks trying to uh, craft a cable that has, you know, things dragging off of it with the idea that maybe they could sort of... Um, manipulate the cable and that would change the direction of the ship. That doesn't work. Um, the men really want to build a raft. He lets them build a raft. Then after a certain interval, he chucks the raft overboard because he realizes, again, they don't want to head south to those little small islands um, and it's just weighing them down. Um, so we really realize how much extra material is on this boat. Um, he comes up with the idea of a spare rudder and this is Pakenham's rudder which again um, was kind of one of these patented ideas and there were diagrams and and how to um uh, publish so the one that's made out of masts yards yes <laughs> yeah. so it's like whatever you have uh left or handy you could perhaps um construct and so they try that um again i think that one had little effect but there was a, you know, and then there was a third one, which finally did kind of allow them at least to veer in the right direction, which would have been north and slightly west. Um, Ryu was really concerned that if he went north and east, uh, he would hit Madagascar. And uh, for him, Madagascar was a, a rather terrifying unknown. Um, and so, you know, he why was that? What were there rumors of things? I think only that he hadn't been that direction and had very, um, you know, I think one of the challenges of sailing around Southern Africa is how, uh, how dangerous and how kind of stormy it is and how few accessible uh, harbors there are. Um, So people knew of um, the harbor by Cape Town and, but further, further East, um, there was sort of much more uncertainty um, and he even says, you know, only two of the men on board this ship have, have rounded the Cape. Um, so, you know, he himself had not been this direction. And so um, they were really all very, uh, very fearful, I think. Um, and yet throughout this, we still have Ryu diligently trying to take um, sites and to compute his position and figure out where he is even though you know it's been weeks since he's been able to get a noon site um it's just you know kind of interesting how carefully um schooled he was in the proper routine and he was still um you know doing his calculations um as he had been trained to do um and and this is one of the kind of remarkable things as you follow his logbook you can see his handwriting deteriorating just getting more and more um exhausted you really you read his account and think this man never slept he's he's like only when i'm there will the will they work at the pump you know and uh, you know there were threats of mutiny um because people how just how many how many were with him do we know how many stayed on board oh uh, we think about 60 
Um, all but two of the convicts um, were still there. And so uh, the convicts behaved themselves so well that uh, in the end, he suggested that they um, have their sentences commuted. Uh, and eventually that was agreed to, but they still had to go to Australia. Um, and what's rather horrifying is that some of these captains of the other um, you know, transport ships to Australia were such um, you know, grim characters that several of those convicts uh, died on their way. So uh, Ryu is kind of interesting, I think, as this has become a heroic figure, right? A perfect captain who's good at, at heartening his men. He's brilliant at navigating. You know, he was tall and well-made. Like everything about the descriptions of him uh, make him sound perfect, um, which of course is unlikely. Um, but I think just the, the experience of having survived this this uh, traumatic wreck, um, he becomes a, a hero. So, Does he get back to Cape Town? Is that where, the, where, yes. where he returns? So, um, you know, January is rough. Um, then they somehow catch what they think, you know, they call somewhat like a trade wind uh, that takes them in the right direction. So they are finally kind of um, bearing northwest um, and the ship, again, lightened in the, um, in the bow. It's kind of more maneuverable and they still have enough sail to, to go in the right direction. Um, and they're, they're on the lookout for any signs, right? Any kind of um, seabirds, anything that might indicate where they are. Um, and in kind of mid-February, uh, their luck finally changes and they're you know, making um, decent progress in the right direction. And then a Dutch whaleboat um, comes across their path and they're just, they can't believe it. You know, they can see land, they see Table Mountain, uh, and they realize that they are going to make it. And so then um, the whaleboat helps them get in to Cape Town, at which point then the Guardian is basically a wreck on, on, the, mm. on the beach. Um, and at this point then, you know, Ryu's like, but we can salvage her. <laughs> and everyone's like, no, 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 <laughs> your ship is done. <laughs> we, we. <laughs> So then, Edward, we are all done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then he takes uh, uh, the figurehead home with him to London. Um, and he, I think, does face um, sort of a tribunal to make sure that he was not guilty of, of uh, this accident. And, of course, he's cleared. And then he is, again, welcomed as a hero um, back in London. Um, and what's ha what, what happens next, I think, is really interesting. But everyone thinks he's dead in London, is that right? Or well, they now know he survived? The news had come, and somehow his letter caught up with Clement's letter. So they were only, even though they had been received, you know, six weeks apart uh, in Cape Town, they arrived in London only a week apart. And so his mother and sister thought that he was dead, um, but only for a week. Um, and so then they receive this one-line message, Dear Mom, I'm okay, <laughs> you know? Wow. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's really... Um, I can't imagine uh, the state of, of these men uh, after this um, sort of horrendous two-month uh, ordeal. But what is so um, surprising is kind of the afterlife of this voyage. Um, it becomes... A stage play. It inspires um, songs. Uh, it has this kind of popular um, resonance. And again, as you said, we had never heard of the Guardian, um, except it was 
very big news in the 1790s and 1791. There's at least three different um, sort of ballads of the Guardian uh, describing how these heroic men survived. Um, and those were popular enough to be reprinted even into the 19th century. Um, and what's really wonderful is that this becomes sort of a stage play at Sadler's Wells. And uh, Margaret Lincoln said to me, oh, well, Sadler's Wells, that's the theater where they could flood the stage because of ah. the well. Uh, and so I, I looked this up and sure enough, there were a number of these kind of um, water uh, plays. And I, I you wonder whether there were other kind of shipwreck stories. Um, but let me just quickly read you the um, playbill. Um, so, Do you know any more about about the well? I don't understand the sentence, they could have flooded it because of the wells. I mean, I, having said that, I live on Well Street, which I presume there were lots of wells where I live. Well, um, so I presume there were wells nearby, which means there was access to fresh water. Simple as that, yeah? Well, my understanding is that, you know, this is kind of... Um, have you heard this story where they used to flood the Coliseum to stage? Yes, uh, right. yes, that was the one that... Yeah. Right, so I think this is not dissimilar. And in Toronto a few years ago at our opera house, we had a, a work by Robert Lepage, and he um, filled the stage with a foot or two of water and then uh, reenacted... Um, uh, I can't remember which story... Um, mm. So the tempest, it must have been the tempest or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you could kind of. And so in that case, it was, you know, um, men dressed in black. So they would be kind of invisible, manipulating puppets as they were in the water. And so I think it might have been something like this, some kind of pantomime, um, but but a nautical one that took, um, you know, took advantage of the fact that you could whether it was a few inches of water or, or deeper than that. Um, but you could have these little boats sail across the stage. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, right. I'm sure that theater historians uh, could tell us more. Uh, so that the, um, the publication, The World, on July 9th, 1791, uh, has a little ad. And it says, this present evening, July 9th, and the following evenings, a great variety of entertainments, particularly an entirely new comic dance called The Beehive. Uh, that's you know item number one on the on the playlist um and next a favorite historical representation in two parts in which is given a living picture of the guardian frigate commanded by lieutenant ryu uh and then after that of course tightrope dancing by signora pietro bologna um and then some other <laughs> other kind of um entertainments one called neptune's la vie or harlequin in spain so um there are all these kind of um, you know, maybe it's like a variety show, but here we have this historical representation of the Guardian. Um, and so that's one theatrical um, afterlife of this um, amazing story. And then we have sheet music published at the time. Um, and um, one which uh, is called Jack the Guinea Pig, um, Guinea pigs being, you know, men who sailed to Guinea or, you know, in the Africa trade. So this, these sailors were called Guinea pigs. Um, a favorite song sung by Mrs. Marlowe with great applause at Sadler's Wells in the Guardian Frigate or English Heroism. Um, and so, again, this song goes on about, you know, uh, the, the wonders of these of these sailors and the, and the heroism of Ryu. Um, now, Margaret, I know there was one piece of music that you you were, you were were so intrigued by. You were desperate to hear performed, and you you um, well, you got someone to do it. Take us through the story. 
Sure. Well, I did put out a call on Twitter to say, is there anyone who's interested in, in maritime history and musical enough to help me uh, bring to life this um, piece of ephemera from the Wreck of the Guardian? And this is a song called The Forecastle Sailor or The Guardian Frigate. Uh, written by Mr. Schachter and sung by Mr. Darley at Foxhall Gardens um, and then composed by John Moulds. So uh, this is us, um, you know, a piece of, we, we thought that perhaps it was a sea shanty, but we realized, no, it's actually um, kind of a, a dance hall um, song. So... Who did you get to play it? Who was the who's the performer? So uh, I don't know if you've heard of the excellent medieval historian Seb Falk. Uh, he saw, uh, agreed to sing it for me. Uh, Margaret, that was absolutely fantastic, and well done on having the vision of actually recreating some of this music. Um, there's something I've always wanted to do like that: the Navy Records Society. And guys, if you're listening, do check out NavyRecords.org.uk. They have a book of um, naval ballads. Uh, and it, uh, so we've got all the music, we've got all the words, and uh, so we've just got to recreate them and turn them into music. And I'm, I'm, bear with me, I'm going to try and get that done at some point. Um, but thank you so much for sharing the wonderful story of the Guardian. And uh, what I'd like to do is to get you back on the podcast, and we'll do, we'll talk about navigation. I think it's about time we did some kind of navigation masterclass and make people realise just what was involved and just how they actually learnt their craft. But for today, and for sharing that brilliant story of the Guardian, Mar- Margaret, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Sam. Take care. To finish with, I wanted to play you Dr Seb Falk's version of the Foxal Sailor, also called the Guardian Frigate, and this may very well be the first ever recording of it. It was written by Mr Shapter and sung by Mr Darley at Vauxhall Gardens, composed by John Moulds, late pupil to Mr Linley in either 1790 or 1791. But here you are, here is Seb Falk. Now Seb is himself a historian of some renown and teaches medieval history and the history of science at Cambridge University. I would urge you all to get his recent book, The Light Ages, The Surprising Story of Medieval Science. In fact, I sense an episode of medieval navigation on the horizon. from the northward when we steer from the Cape of Good Hope the skies looked quite pitchy and wayward and the sea on our weather bow broke the boatswain piped all hands to bear and I came down the backstay so glib for I am a forecastle sailor for I am a forecastle sailor for I am a forecastle sailor, you may see by the cut of my jib. Start my timbers, cries Ned Junk of Dover, plump to me as I landed on deck. With us it will soon be all over. For the Guardian must quick go to wreck. Well, well, we shan't live to be well, cried I, and I patted his rib. 
work like a forecastle sailor. Come work like a forecastle sailor. Come work like a forecastle sailor. And I don't think I'll shiver my jib. an hour when about two leagues to leeward we spied an island of ice like a tower and on it our ship swiftly hide but now it was no use for to bear her the water gained on us so glib so each like a true-hearted sailor so each like a true-hearted sailor so each like a true-hearted sailor waited fate for to shiver his jib. Some took to the boat, do ye mind me? Are the some on the vessel's deck stood? Cried I, may old Davy Jones take me, if I sail from my captain so good. Now Providence helped us to bail her, and we managed to patch up her rib. Safe arrived is each true-hearted sailor, safe arrived is each true-hearted sailor. Safe arrived is each true-hearted sailor To rig up his weather-beat jib Thank you all so much for listening. Now, don't let this be the last thing you do to interact with the Mariner's Mirror podcast. First of all, go back to our brilliant back catalogue and check out a huge range of maritime history. Yes, we have our mini series on maritime disasters, but there also there is so, so much more. There's biographies, there's iconic ships, there's battles, everything you could possibly think of, even mermaids. Please also don't just listen to the podcast, but look at what we've managed to create on our one wonderful YouTube channel. There's tons of fabulous material there, including the use of artificial intelligence to bring ships' figureheads alive, the animation of battle plans, the use of 3D modelling to show you around magnificent ships of the past. You really will not believe your eyes. Please also note that the podcast comes from both the Lloyds Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. So do please check out everything that both institutions are up to. The Lloyds Register Foundation's archive you can see at HEC lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up and become part of a society that has been helping to preserve maritime history for well over a century. Nothing could be finer.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.